Hello and welcome to Sticky from the Inside, the employee engagement podcast that looks at how to build stickier, competition-smashing, consistently successful organisations from the inside out. I'm your host, Andy Gorham, and I'm on a mission to help more businesses turn the lights on behind the eyes of their employees, light the fires within them, and create tons more success for everyone. This podcast is for all those who believe that's something worth going after and would like a little help and guidance in achieving that. Each episode, we dive into the topics that can help create what I call stickier businesses, the sort of businesses where people thrive and love to work and where more customers stay with you and recommend you to others because they love what you do and why you do it. So if you want to take the tricky out of being sticky, listen on. Okay, when I wrote the introduction that you've just listened to nearly three years ago now and set the mission to help more businesses turn the lights on behind the eyes of their employees, light the fires within them and create tons more success for everyone by creating what I call stickier businesses. That's businesses where people thrive and love to work and where more customers stay with you and recommend you to others because they also love what you do and importantly, why you do it. Little. Little did I think that I would record an episode that tries to tackle all of that in one go. But there's a very good chance that's exactly what we're going to do today. So if you're ready to unlock the secrets to creating a workplace where employees don't just show up, but they thrive and truly love what they do, please stick around. Today, I have got a great guest on the show who's as enlightening as they are energizing. His name is Joe Mull, and he's the author of a fabulous book I'm just reading called Employalty, which is all about how to attract and retain what I would call superstar employees. Now, together today, we're diving headfirst into the realm of social science and research, uncovering the secret ingredients to activate people at work and turn jobs into lifelong loves. If you've ever wanted to get a better understanding of what ignites that fire within certain employees or what truly makes someone light up with passion for their work, this is the episode for you. But we don't just talk theory on this podcast. I like to give you practical takeaways that can help you back at the ranch. And today, I know Joe's going to share his simple evidence-based framework for creating extraordinary employee experiences. And I think if you Use this. You can help turn that workplace into a hub of commitment, growth, and enjoyment. So whether you are an HR guru, a manager shooting for the stars, or just someone who's curious about what makes work truly click, this is the episode for you. So get ready to scribble down notes, soak in the wisdom, and infuse your workplace with stickiness from the inside out as we chat to Joe. Welcome to the show, Joe. I am so excited to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me today. It's brilliant to have you here today, Joe. People who listen to this podcast know that I do like to read, but I'm not the greatest reader. And I'm having a great time reading your book. I've, I've got to say, it felt like someone had dug into my soul and was regaling tales about all the things I, I absolutely love to talk, which is <laughs> why I'm so excited to have a chat to you today. Thank you, my friend. That is really, really lovely feedback. I, I, 
enjoy some aspects of the writing process, particularly storytelling and how to paint pictures for people. And we sought out uh, different kinds of workplaces than we sometimes get to read about in business books, right? We read about big companies, but most people work for small to mid-sized businesses. So we wrote about hospitals and we wrote about assisted living centers and we wrote about electricians and plumbers and the trades. And uh, I think that's a a part of the book that I'm the most proud of. And that is such an interesting thing that you notice when you read that book. It's it's no longer about Apples and McKinsey's and Deloitte's yes. and all the kind of usual suspects. This is about real people doing real work, not necessarily stuck in an office and having to follow the kind of theories that everybody talks about when it comes to engagement and purpose. This is people on the front line doing the do. And I think that's a fabulous thing about this book. The stories are so relatable. And, and like I say, you write well, my friend. You really do write well. Thank you. Thank um, you. Before I run away with myself and just start getting stuck straight into the topic, <laughs> could you do us a favor, please, Joe? Just give us a little bit of your background and, and, and tell me about what you're focused on right now. Sure. Well, I've spent about 20 years teaching leaders how to be better bosses and how to make work work for all. I've always sort of nerded out a little bit around the social science research around what 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 makes people love their job and, and you know I've I've read all that employee engagement stuff and been plugged into that world for a number of years but um my my favorite part of my work is in the speaking so I do a lot of keynote speaking I do a lot of training and workshops and travel all over for that and I I love thinking about how can I translate complex ideas into simple frameworks that have a lot of utility. And how can I do that for an audience in a way that is just captivating? And so uh, that's really been at the center of my work for a lot of years. I was previously the head of learning and development for one of the largest healthcare systems here in the United States. And then I went out on my own about 10 years ago and have been writing and speaking on these topics ever since. Well, it's a great opportunity uh, for speaking to you on this today, Joe. So I'm really appreciative of that. And I'm interested, you do a lot of speaking. And mm-hmm. I, and I've 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 clearly working my way through the book. I think the whole genus, the idea, the stimulus for you writing this book is an interesting story in itself because that sort mm. of came out of a speaking engagement on a podcast, right? I guess a bit like That's this. Right. <laughs> what right. happened? What happened, Joe? Tell me, because I I really would love to understand what was the trigger for you getting all these thoughts together and and putting it together in in loyalty. Certainly. We, I was doing a podcast interview, uh, and for about 30 minutes, it had a really rich conversation with the host about where commitment comes from at work. You know, we, we ended up listing so many of the different things that leaders have to get right and business owners have to have in place in order for people to join an organization and stay long-term and want to give it all they've got. And at the very end of the interview, the host said this. He said, all right, Joe, let's get you out of here on this. Let's put a nice bow on this for everyone. (laughs) In one sentence, where does commitment come from at work? And I went, well, you know, I don't think I can give it to you in just one sentence. And then I proceeded to recap our entire 30-minute conversation (laughs) in the world's longest run-on sentence. I don't know, Andy, if you've ever had the experience where you start talking and you can hear yourself talking, but you can't stop talking. That happened to me. And uh, you know, my answer wasn't wrong. It just wasn't concise. And I kept thinking about that afterwards and thinking about, boy, no wonder leaders and business owners struggle to create engaging workplaces and to activate commitment. It it feels like at times we have to 
memorize volumes of information and research around what we should be focusing on to, to be great leaders and to create an engaging workplace. And so I really set out to come up with that one sentence answer to that question, where does commitment come from in the workplace? And this was all happening at a time when I was really growing frustrated with uh, this national narrative that was taking place here in the United States Mm. post-COVID around what was being called the great resignation and so much turmoil in the labor market and staffing shortages as people described them. And so all of those things came together and and resulted in me writing this book. and And it's great. And there's a couple of things I want to just pick up on there. I I love what we're going to get into because I do think you simplify the complex. The If I could describe the faces MDs, FDs, HRDs make when you start to try and have a conversation with them about culture and engagement and purpose, it's right. normally one of complete overwhelm. If you're working with great people who know this stuff's important but don't know where to start, that face is like, oh, my, it's fear. <laughs> This is a hugely complex yeah. thing. How am I going to? And this is, I think, the stuff that puts a lot of people off really digging in and leaning into this stuff because it can be, it can be just amorphous. It can be just like, well, where do you yeah. start? Right. Um, but I think you break it down brilliantly in, in, in the book, which we'll get into. But before we, we kind of move on, I also think what was lovely to see the title of the book, Employalty, right? Mm-hmm. You could look at that and go, well, this is about employee loyalty, right? But there's there's a huge underlying current under there. There's a third piece, right, Joe? Explain to us what the third piece is that we don't miss out because I think it's like the most important part almost. Yeah. You know, the joke is when you write a book, you, you title the book for the problem people think they have. And then when they get, you get into the book, you unveil, unveil the problem that they really have. And so we're playing a little bit of a trick on readers here because you see the word employalty and you think it means employee loyalty, but it's Mm. actually a portmanteau of the words employer loyalty and humanity. As we evaluate everything going on in the world and what people are looking for out of a workplace. And when we understand what activates commitment at work, what we know is that employers must make a commitment to a more humane employee experience because that's what activates commitment at work. And so we write from all of the social science research and from the very real world experiences of employees in a lot of different places about how to do exactly that, how to create a more humane employee experience. And the result is you get commitment and people stay and they go tell others to join your organization. And that's what I love. And this is, it feels to me like there's a bit of kismet in here. The stars are aligning. This, 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 this message is, is bang on with my, my own thing around stickier businesses and, and all that mm-hmm. malarkey. Um, and particularly, I think the differentiation, differentiation rather that you make between the output, I guess, or the outcome of this approach being a destination workplace mm. versus how you describe lots of other businesses as departure organizations, which I thought was a really lovely turn of (laughs) phrase. Just explain to the listeners exactly what you mean by that. Well, as leaders and as business owners, we have to choose our identity in this world, right? The the uh, the era I say in the book that the era of trying to find the best person for the job is over. What we have to do now is create the best job for the person, and that requires a mindset shift. And we have so many beliefs about how work should be, um, thoughts and ideas, and even misperceptions about what drives people to care and try about a job that we end up 
we end up getting caught up in some predictable patterns uh, that are pretty antiquated around work. Some of them are around pay and some of them are around effort. And uh, the truth is that when we have people who are no longer getting what they need from our organization and they go seeking it elsewhere, you're a departure organization. And if you are the kind of organization that creates a more humane employee experience and understands that if I get certain employee experiences right, people are going to join and stay, well, that makes you a destination workplace. And so at this moment, whatever industry you're in, you have to choose to either be one or the other. And I think this is what is underlying in the book, this kind of changing landscape of what's going on, changing changing attitudes. And yet, even within that, you use some pretty powerful words. We've already used the word commitment already, mm-hmm. but you are, it seems to me at least, very intentional of the use of the word devotion when you're talking about mm-hmm. employees. Now, now, cynics, naysayers could sort of like start throwing stones and all sorts of things at us, having a conversation about, um, well, we want devoted employees in today's landscape, and they might think, what are you smoking? Because is that even mm-hmm. possible? I mean, you're strong on this, right? Those two words, devotion and and commitment. Well, why were they important for you, do you think? Yeah. Well, so admittedly, I probably use the word devotion as a synonym to commitment, which I also use essentially as a synonym to engagement. So so candidly, I'm probably using the word devotion in some spots because I just can't keep using the word commitment. (laughs) But (laughs) I I think a part of of what's what's in there in terms of your question is – you know, is this really an appropriate thing to expect or ask for, right? Devotion to work. And when Mm -hmm. I talk about devoted employees, I'm using that language, one, because we know that's what leaders are looking for. We And that's what business owners are looking for. That's the goal, right? I want people who are going to be devoted or committed to what we're doing here. I'm not talking about devotion and in terms of it being an unhealthy level of all-in commitment that takes in our lives. When I talk about devotion, I'm talking about devotion to my mission, right? To to the mission of our team or the mission of our organization. And what I'm really talking about is people who are willing to part with discretionary effort, right? We know that there's a space between doing the minimum and giving it all you've got at work. And only employees who are emotionally and psychologically committed to their work access that space, that that extra gear, if you will, that, that in the literature is referred to as discretionary effort. That doesn't mean we don't have work-life balance. That doesn't mean that we aren't creating uh, boundaries at work so that people can have a life outside of work. It just means that when they're there, when they're working, when they're with us, they are fired up to give it all they've got because they care deeply about what's happening there. 100%. Listen, and I don't I don't want to carry on sound like a fanboy um of the book but gen- genuinely it it's it, it's it's touched me I, it's it's connected with me and, and and we'll talk about connection later but I, I do think that these themes are incredibly important but the one piece i love in here as well is the fact that this isn't a nice thing to have this is not just about making people mm. feel lovely at work it's a it's business we're here yeah to get performance we're here to drive results and we use a dirty m word here money right this mm-hmm. this stuff gets a financial payback right it it can drive revenue drive profits cut costs all these things it's here for a real commercial reason 
Right. So we talk about in the book, and and, we're, and I know maybe it feels like we're we're um, teasing the framework <laughs> here, and I know we're going to talk about it in a minute. Yeah. I promise. But the the framework really is a kind of internal psychological scorecard that mm. every employee in every job in every company on earth is walking through the doors with. And if you can check the box next to a handful of these experiences that people have on their internal psychological scorecard. You do a couple of things. First of all, you become nearly impenetrable to poaching. If I'm getting everything I want or need from my employer and my work experience, it's very unlikely that another organization is going to be able to steal me away or tempt me to go work someplace else. The other thing that happens is you cho- you supercharge effort. When people get everything that they're looking for on this internal psychological scorecard, we end up seeing them go, wow. This is like, it's like hitting the lottery. I, I I move from, I have to do this work to, I want to do this work. And so my effort goes up. And when my effort goes up, every metric you care about in your organization goes up. When you have a completely committed workforce, you get better quality, better service, better outcomes, better revenue, better reputation, better customer experiences. And so I think it's really important to name that early on. And I'm so glad you brought this up early on, because when we talk about a more humane employee experience, that sounds soft. Yeah. Right. When we talk about things like culture and leadership and retention, they sound squishy, but this is not soft. This is a business imperative. This is an adapt or die moment for companies of all sizes and shapes to think about how they've thought about work for years and how they might need to think differently about it in order to really get people to join and give it all they've got. Yeah, I mean, you described this. Uh, forgive me, I'm really well known for butchering quotes, but I think <laughs> I think you sort of sum up employability as the entrance fee, entrance ticket for success, right? I mean, this yes. is this is the message, my friend. This is exactly what we're yes. trying to get across here, right? Yes, and you didn't butcher that. I think okay, that's good. almost word for. I think we call it the entry fee for success. Yeah, okay, you're absolutely perfect. right. You know, I, I talk to to executives and leaders a lot about. That, that this isn't easy and admittedly so, right? The, the, the things that we have to do to become a destination workplace are not easy. They take time. They take money. They take resources. They take effort. And, you know, you can run a business with lower pay. You can run a business without any of the experiences that we know matter to employees. You can run a business with a minimum staffing threshold, for example. And the result is going to be one set of problems, right? You're going to have churn. You're going to have turnover. You're going to have um, a lot of folks maybe who are just coasting or doing the minimum. And, you know, that's one set of problems you can choose to have. Mm. Or you can move over to the conversation that we're having, which is another set of problems, right? How do I pay people more? How do I create an environment where people are working for a great boss and they're moving up in an organization? That's a different kind of hard But when you choose that set of hard problems, it's the only version of this where the result is a more committed workforce, a better set of customer experiences, higher revenue, less retention. So, you know, choose your hard, but pick the one that gives you the the better result. Uh, Yeah. And I would add the word sustainable in that as well. Mm -hmm. I think if you play our game and I'm I'm calling it our game, my brother, uh, because I think we're in this together, right? (laughs) We are in this together. Absolutely. (laughs) I I think this is where the sustainability comes from. You know, no more yin and yang in between one year that's great, one year that's bad based on how we've acted. This this is about sustainability. You're right. We have teased the framework and we will get into (laughs) it, right? Because I do want to get into it. 
I'm a sucker though, and maybe sucker's the wrong word. I'm an advocate of social science and research, and mm -hmm. you make a big thing about being evidence-based. And you talk about a whole range of mm. different stimuli and research that backs up the largely what well, a lot of people refer to anecdotal kind of um, stories and feedback that people get this stuff's important. Are there any particular bits of social science within the research you did for this book that are kind of like your absolute favorite go-tos, like, yeah. like this is the thing I refer to the most? Yeah. So that would probably fall into two buckets for me. Okay. Um, the first bucket is why do people leave? What leads, what leads someone to exit an organization? And, you know, we, we point to dozens and dozens of really reputable, both academic and corporate types of research in this book mm. that point repeatedly to the experiences that people have with their pay, their boss, and their teammates. Also baked in there somewhere is what are my prospects for the future? Mm -hmm. What is my workload and how does it impact my, my life outside of work? Um, but there was one research study that you mentioned to McKinsey, and they do a lot of wonderful research yeah. in these areas. Um, and they were seeing a lot of turnover in the job market, people exiting jobs post-COVID for three primary reasons. I didn't feel valued by my workplace. I didn't feel respected by my manager. And I didn't ex feel like I belonged in the organization. Yeah. So right there, we've got some big ideas around pay, around my boss and around the, you know, that team cohesion and maybe inclusion in, in terms of what we talk about. So I, I come back to that a lot in the conversations I have around some of these bigger ideas. The other piece of social science research that has really been at the center of my work for years is around the, the significant influence that direct supervisors have. Mm. Um, we started a podcast a couple of years ago called Boss Better Now. We have a Boss Better Leadership Academy because we know that a person's direct supervisor, what we call their boss, is the single most influential factor in the employee experience. We know that 75% of people who leave a job indicate that their boss is part or all of the reason why. And so it, it's been said, and it is true, that in a lot of cases, people actually don't quit their jobs. They quit their bosses. Yeah. And so when we recognize the importance of that relationship and that experience, uh, it starts to give you a little glimpse into what we have to get right in order to attract and retain talent. What a wonderful segue into the framework itself. Joe, because we have <laughs> cheesed the living daylights out of this so far. Let's let's get into this this framework because I think this is now setting the the roadmap for for, for success going forward. I, I love the way that you build it in the book. I think the Venn diagrams where it all kind of mm. comes together are brilliant. If I'm going to draw those and stick them on the Instagram channel as part of this uh, episode, because I think they just make something incredibly yeah. complex, dead, dead simple, really cool. Um, but without me sort of like going on and on and on, talk us through the framework, my friend. Take us through this kind of evidence-based framework that sets yeah. up this entry ticket for success. Sure. So we analyzed more than 200 research studies and articles on why people quit a job or take a new job or decide to stay with an organization. And we sorted all of those findings into three core areas. And so we can say with conviction that finding and keeping committed employees really comes down 
to giving people their ideal job doing meaningful work for a great boss. And if I could go back in time to that podcast, you know, about two years ago now, (laughs) and that gentleman at the end of our interview said, give it to us in one sentence, Joe, where does commitment come from at work? I would say, well, commitment and retention appear when people are in their ideal job doing meaningful work for a great boss. Now, there are dimensions to each of these, what we call factors. These are the three factors of a destination workplace. Mm. Uh, the three fact, the, the dimensions to the ideal job factor are compensation, workload, and flexibility. If my compensation is right, my workload is right, and I have some flexibility around when, where, and how I work, that's my ideal job. That job fits into my life like a puzzle piece snapping into place. The second factor is meaningful work, and that comes down to purpose, strengths, and belonging. If I believe my work has purpose, if the work I'm doing in my job aligns with my strengths, my talents, my gifts, and if I experience belonging on my team, then that work is meaningful, and I move from having to do it to wanting to do it. And then that third factor is great boss. We just talked about this, Andy, that it's such an influential factor. And there are dozens of things that leaders have to get right for someone to point to them and and say, man, I've got a great boss. But we think the three most important are what we call trust, coaching, and advocacy. As a boss, do I grant trust and earn trust? Do I engage in ongoing coaching conversations with my direct reports? And do I advocate for them, right? Do do I act in their best interests consistently? When we do those things, we nail the great boss factor. So that's the Venn diagram that you're referring to. Ideal job, meaningful work, great boss, those nine dimensions inside each, and that happy little space in the middle where all three overlap is commitment. And it's it goes so far beyond this simple Venn diagram, three factors nine pieces that cover all that stuff because i really liked the added dimension of what i call the three r's in there Mm. right so the i guess the the outcomes what you get if you deliver these things and like any good venn diagram if you deliver two (laughs) parts you get something but you're missing a third part and the way you tell stories around that i mean someone listening right now they won't have a clue what i'm going on about but explain where the three r's play their role in your venn diagram Right. So we talk about reputation, retention, and revenue, right? So what we know is that if you are trying to get your employees to do all the things that we've been talking about in this episode, right? You want them to join your organization. You want them to stay long-term, but you also want to activate their commitment, right? You don't want them to just go through the motions and do the minimum. You want them to care and try. But if you only do two out of the three parts of this formula, if you will, you're not going to get that whole comprehensive set. So you have these three factors of ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. And sad as it is to say, you can nail two of them, but you still won't necessarily become a destination workplace because here the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? So for example, if you give someone their ideal job, right, you're nailing compensation, workload, and flexibility, and they've got a great boss who is... Uh, uh, earning and granting trust, who is advocating and who is coaching, you're going to get retention, right? Because mm-hmm. people say, hey, I, my, my pay is great. My schedule is great. I've got a great boss. And you might even get you know, some, some revenue out of that. But people's are, if they're not getting meaningful work, if they're not getting the purpose and the strengths and the belonging, right? You're not necessarily going to get 
that reputation piece, right? You're not necessarily going to get get that retention piece because if I don't find my work meaningful, I may start to get bored. Yeah. Right? Or for example, if you have meaningful work, right? Somebody is coming to work and they're they have purpose, their their work aligns with their strengths, they're experiencing belonging, and they're working for a great boss who coaches them, who trusts them, who advocates them for them. You're going to get that reputation, right? You're going to deliver an outstanding customer experience and that's going to result in higher revenue. But you know what you're probably not getting? You're probably not getting a lot of retention because what's missing is compensation, workload, and flexibility, that ideal job piece. And at some point, I may go from being a single bachelor who can devote a ton of hours and get by on a lower salary to now I'm a family man and I've got a couple of kids and I need some flexibility around when I'm at work and when I'm maybe at home to get the kids off the bus. And if my job doesn't provide that, I may have to go looking elsewhere for it. And so if we want to get retention and reputation and revenue, we have to have all three of these factors of ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. And I think that is the piece, that that summary there of, of getting all three is where these three factors all kind of really click and make mm. sense and where the money thing ties back in because i i don't I, I guess whenever i end up talking about this stuff with people two things either come up one is about making money and the mm. other thing is about yeah well it all sounds lovely for employees but we've got to get them to work right mm-hmm. and um i know you touch on it in in, in the book but when if you get a similar question Joe, or you get mm-hmm. a similar comment about, yeah, well, it's not all about the employee. You know, we got to get stuff out of them. How do you approach that sort of stuff? Because you do talk about, hey, this is this is no easy place, right? This is not somewhere you right. can just hide and get paid great cash. Right. You got to earn that stuff. Right. You know, and and I think one of the the big ideas that we try to repeat in the book and 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 point to as a takeaway is very basically that people generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job. Yeah. And so you can't require commitment. You can only nurture it, right? You can, you can only engineer it. It's a reciprocity, right? We wrote about this a little bit in the beginning of the book. It's how do I treat the people here better than they would be treated anywhere else? When you do that, that actually results in people going, wow, I've got a pretty great thing going here. I want to, I want to be a part of this. I want to give it all they've got. But the pay piece is really interesting, isn't it? Because for so long, the perception has been that we should, you know, what is the minimum amount that we can pay people? What is the minimum amount that we can um, get get away away with? with? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because we want to be, we want to be revenue generating. And of course that is true, but there's a national conversation that's taking place here in the United States right now. And and I, I would gather that it probably is happening in most of the developed countries on earth about this massive shift that has taken place over the last few decades to really maximize shareholder value especially in you know publicly traded companies and owner revenue you know for years back in the in the 40s and the 50s there was a, a sort of shared perspective that if we as business owners are generous to our employees they will be generous to us in terms of their effort. And so there was a mutually beneficial relationship, a symbiotic relationship there where I will prosper if I help my employees prosper. 
But in recent years, there's been this maximizing of shareholder value and where, well, how do we keep costs for employees down as long as possible? And what's resulted here in the U.S. has been that wages barely moved for nearly 40 years. The the median salary for the average worker here in the United States rose 10% from 1979 to 2021. Whereas cost of living has increased 400%. And so we're living in a moment right now where we are paying for the sins of this wage stagnation. And there's a wages reckoning taking place. When we have people who say, I can't work here anymore because I can't afford it. It's not because they're entitled. It's not being driven out of greed. It's being driven out of survival. Everything costs more for people. And when we haven't moved wages in so long, they end up going around and looking for a way to improve their quality of life. And and that's the thing here, at least in the States. And again, as we looked at, we do have some information, some data in the book about other countries and other continents on earth. The, The big picture has been across the board that there are now more jobs available than there are people to fill them across a host of industries. And when that numbers game is in place, people can go looking for an upgrade. And that's what they're doing. Uh, One of my favorite things to do at, at the start of my keynotes is ask people, what motivates employees to care and try at work? And sometimes I'll use this fun polling technology where everybody pulls out their oh, yeah, mobile cool. phones and I give them a little QR code and they can answer this anonymously. And I'll do this as a word cloud. If you know what a word cloud mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. everybody answers a one or two word uh, and they all go up on the screen and kind of morphs and shifts and changes. And the largest words in the word cloud are the answers that are being given most by the audience. And it never fails, Andy. When I ask what motivates employees to care and try at work, the largest words in the word cloud are always related to money. Yeah salary, wages, bonuses, right? But guess what? Money and benefits and wages and everything related to compensation has very little to do with effort, has very little to do with care and try. It has everything to do with join and stay. There you go. So that first dimension here of this model, that first factor of ideal job really has everything to do with getting people to walk through the door and not want to leave. When you get compensation, workload, and flexibility right, they will come, they will stay. But then those things are sort of off the table when it comes to effort, right? When it gets, when it comes to getting people to want to do a great job, that's where these other factors come in of meaningful work and great boss. There's so many things in there, my friend. I mean, some people might be familiar with, I think it was the Aon Hewitt kind of measurement system for engagement that was like, say, stay uh, mm-hmm. strive and i think we added thrive to to the end of it right in that whole kind of employee journey but the, the join try stay is a nice simple mm-hmm. uh, um, version of that i think the piece around shareholders i mean i've kind of in my past been one of the guys you know pumped up to go on stage and try and rally an organization in some sense of purpose you're up there going hey let's work harder and make some more money for the people who've got loads of money already and that just doesn't work right that's not a rally cry for anyone right and uh, you you talk about this this wage living i mean it is tough right now and we might we might sort of dig into this a, a bit more in a sec but if you think that wages reckoning is going on and you combine people's kind of attitude to work now post covid looking for better and you project seven or so years ahead to this job and skills shortage that is fast looming right because mm-hmm. of the the change in the generational shift and the upskilling and 
the baby boomer loss and all that kind of stuff. If you're not on board this bus right now, creating mm-hmm. environments where people really, really want to stay, develop, give their best effort, feel like they're really contributing, but are seen, heard, valued, understand why those things are, you are going to be in trouble. I don't care how big an organization you are, how small an organization you are. This is going to affect everyone. And yeah. I think this is no longer going to be this kind of, oh, it's a kind of hangover from COVID and everybody's feeling a bit loved up and everybody wants to talk about being lovely and inhuman. No, gang, this is an opportunity we have now to take the very best things that came out of COVID, of looking over the fence at your neighbour and making sure they're okay and looking out for people and taking a greater sense of just self, the people that we're in a community with. And I'm no hippie. Right, I, I I am not. Uh, that's not me. Twenty-seven years, commercial corporate dude, but this stuff works. And like many things, I think that are being thrown us in society right now, this is an opportunity for us to kind of change for the better. And it, but it is going to take some commitment. It is going to take leaning into this stuff. Yes, it is going to take talking to guys like me and Joe here and other people, all kind of getting on board with this message. Because I'm afraid, and I generally have a concern for great businesses how they operate now if they don't really dig into this stuff we're going to lose we're going to lose some great businesses and we're going to have a completely disenfranchised workforce and then i don't know and i'm not trying to create a massive doom and gloom picture i'm just sort of saying i think we're at a point in history when it comes to employment and employees and employability and and what business is shaped around this is one of those moments i think am i over dramatizing joe or do you are you agree my friend I not only agree, but the data tells us that's the case, yeah. right? When you look at um, voluntary quitting trends across developed countries on earth, and you look at hiring across most developed nations on earth, what's clear in the data is not that people are quitting, it's that they're switching. Yeah. We've consistently had more hiring, uh, you know, hiring at levels above quitting in nearly every industry category that's tracked here in the States. And when you really ask people, why they're switching, you get all sorts of answers, right? So I I will do this a lot in workshops. I'll say, how many of you know someone here who has changed jobs in the past year or two? And nearly every hand goes up. Mm -hmm. And and for some of the people in the audience, it's them. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, okay, why are people switching jobs? What are the reasons that you're hearing? What are the reasons you've experienced? And and in about one to two minutes, I can get two dozen answers. I need a better, I need better pay, better schedule. I need a uh, less toxic work environment, more fulfilling work, opportunities to grow, better work-life balance, a shorter commute, work from home opportunities, better benefits for my family. We can pull out 20 plus answers very quickly. And what I will tell the audience is what I'll tell you right now, Andy, which is that it sounds like these answers are very different, but they're not. They all roll up to a single bigger idea. And that bigger idea is that people are switching to improve their quality of life. Yep. We have had decades of people being overworked, underpaid, burned out, right? Burnout was at an all-time high in most workplaces prior to us ever hearing about COVID. Mm. COVID just took an already exhausted workforce and broke it. And so we see a, a recalibration taking place around how work fits into people's lives. And so- this this has been happening now for more than a decade, right? This idea of the great resignation that we've been talking about. It's not a blip or a fad. It's not a moment. It's an era. And it's one that's expected to continue. And the organizations 
who will more easily find and keep devoted employees are going to be the organizations who innovate in many of the areas that we've talked about here today around ideal job, meaningful work, great boss. And we're seeing that now, right? You're seeing companies experiment with four-day work weeks and new and diverse kinds of benefits packages, flexible schedules. And to your point, I mean, there are capitalistic reasons to do this. It's mm-hmm. it's not just all squishy, be nice to people, love your neighbor. It's when we invest in making work work for people, they turn around and work harder for us. Yeah. And then it's easier to meet those table stakes of a decent compensation, right? Because it's a symbiotic thing. It, everything yeah. grows in theory. Everyone benefits if we continue to play that game. It's when we don't continue to play that game and then we squirrel the profits away that it all becomes a bit of a nightmare. Um, yep. Gosh, I just I just think we've got an opportunity here. Yes. Whenever do you get a chance to stop the world, reset and go. Never. We've had yeah. one. Let's not let's not waste it, right? Let's let's not waste it. Um gosh. Where do I go before I, I let you go today? Uh, there's a couple of things I still want to cover, right? There's some wonderful stories in the book. Mm. We've already referenced the fact that they are how do I, they are relatable stories. Whenever you're mm-hmm. doing your, 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 your keynotes or running workshops, is there any particular story that seems to resonate the most with people when you tell it that you maybe want to share with us today? Is there is there mm. is there a story that you you'll go to? You know, my favorite story in my keynote right now is actually not in the book. It's actually um, a story about the Little League World Series. I don't know if you have such a thing over there and and if you're sending teams over here. Most of us will be aware of it, my friend. Most of us will be aware of that sort of stuff. So the Little League World Series is played mostly by 11 and 12-year-old kids here in the United States. And we field teams from every state in the U.S. and then a, a, a whole host of countries across the world send teams as well. And last year, I had been flipping through the television channels, and I happened to come upon the Little League World Series. And one of the things that's great about the Little League World Series is that ahead of each of the games, the producers of the broadcast will ask these kids questions about themselves to to learn little nuggets of information that they reveal on the broadcast. And it just so happened that on the game that I turned on, the question that had been asked was, what's your dream job? And now these... 11 and 12 year old kids answered this question the way that you would expect most of them to answer. Some of them said, I want to be a police officer. Some of them said, I, I want to be a nurse. Way too many said, I want to be a YouTuber, yeah. right? Which is a real <laughs> thing now. But there was one kid on the broadcast who did not answer this question the same way as his peers. His name is Brody Jackson, and he lives in Webb City, Missouri. And his answer actually went viral. When he was asked, what's your dream job? His answer, Andy, it might be the single greatest answer ever given to the question, what's your dream job? And I'll even sometimes bet my audiences that half of them will leave with me right now (laughs) just to take this job based on the title alone. Because when Brody Jackson was asked, what's your dream job? He said, chicken nugget taste tester. (laughs) That is brilliant. (laughs) Chicken nugget taste tester i mean (laughs) he understood the assignment right that's great when he was asked hey man what how do you want to spend most of your waking hours he reached for the thing that made him the happiest he reached for the thing that brought him the most joy he he reached for the thing that was the best fit for his life at this stage of his life and you know what it turns out that it's exactly what most people in the labor market are doing right now 
when deciding whether or not to stay with your organization or join another. And so this conversation that we're having right now is really about helping leaders and employers understand how to make their jobs dream jobs for people, to understand the ingredients that lead to that perception in employees. Brilliant. I think we could all have a bit more Brody Jenkson in our life, there's no question. (laughs) Indeed. Um, That is a brilliant story, my friend. The final thing is that it feels like you're addressing some myths and misconceptions mm. people have about work. We've started to touch on things like pay and 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 what mm-hmm. have you today. Before we finish today, are there any particular myths and misconceptions you want to highlight? As yeah, I'm blowing these out of the water here in the book. These are the things mm-hmm. that we just people think, but they they're not based in reality. Yeah, I think one of the biggest obstacles that we see in hiring right now is this perception that in some way it's about work ethic. Um, mm. One of the the myths that gets bandied about here a lot is that it's so hard to hire because no one wants to work anymore. And this has become a kind of trope, right? It's become a, a, an expression that people use. We have a, a local uh, business owner in my community here where I live in Western Pennsylvania, who is constantly posting on social media, help me find good people. No one wants to work anymore. And then he lists the pay and the hours yeah. and they're terrible. <laughs> and it's been an interesting thing to watch people come back in the community and say, no, no, time out. It's not that nobody wants to work. It's that nobody wants to work for you. Yeah. And And one of my favorite sort of a happy accidents in doing the research for this book was I ended up finding a, a researcher, a Dr. Ferry out of Canada who studies generational tropes. And he actually says this is the most persistent, most biased generational trope in human history, the belief that people younger than us don't possess the same work ethic that we do. And he actually found examples of this no one wants to work sentiment showing up in North American newspapers every single year going back 120 years. Wow. And so when we want to take a minute to really understand what's happening, let's just look at the numbers. There, As we talked about, there aren't enough people to do all the jobs that we keep adding to our economy. The issue is not that no one wants to work. When we have a hard time filling positions or keeping people, we really want this to be the story, that it's work ethic, right? We want to blame people. When the truth is we need to fix work, We need to fix those pay and benefits and those schedules and those workloads. And so what I challenge audiences to do and what I challenge our book readers to do is to shift your mindset. There is no staffing shortage. There's a great job shortage. And when you shift that mindset, you turn the mirror inward and you start fixing the actual problems that prevent you from being a destination workplace. Oh, Joe, I have so much more I want to talk about, and yet I'm (laughs) not going to have time to do it which is just gutting. It's bittersweet, this whole conversation for me. I, 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 I've loved it. Well, we could do, do it again. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm up for the episode Part two. two. No, no question, my friend, no question. <laughs> um, at the end of the episode, normally, Joe, I ask my guests, because I'm clearly a lazy person who doesn't like to work, to try and summarize everything that they've kind of talked about. And we've, I mean, I think we've kind of summarized the future of work today. Mm. But I, so I have this little section called Sticky Notes. I'd like you to leave three little bits of wisdom where they could stick them on sticky notes around their screen or carry them around with you. And in this sense, you know, I'd written, how do you help someone start their own employee movement? I think we switched that to sort of like, how do you help someone get a bit more Brody Jackson at work? Right. <laughs> <laughs> how do we do that? What, what, what messages would you leave on those three mm. sticky notes, Joe? Um, my first sticky note would be something you heard me say earlier, which is 
People do a great job when they believe they have a great job. Uh, this is not complicated. It is really not that hard to find and keep devoted employees. Treat them better than they would be treated anywhere else, and they will join and stay and care and try. It, it really does come down to asking that question, what would make this place the very best place to be a blank, right? A plumber, a, a, a waiter, a, a, an accountant. So that's my first sticky note. People do a great job when they believe they have a great job. I think the second the second sticky note has to be ideal job, meaningful work, great boss. Yeah. And if you have big sticky notes or you have small handwriting, you can put the three dimensions of each yes. of those underneath, right? Ideal job, compensation, workload, flexibility, meaningful work, purpose, strengths, belonging, great boss, trust, coaching, advocacy. And then my third sticky note, is something I just said as you you teed me up so perfectly for this. It was like you knew it was coming. <laughs> Stop blaming people and start fixing work if you want to be able to find and keep devoted employees. And that in itself is a brilliant end summary to this episode. Joe, it goes without saying, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and definitely want to have another one. I think what I would love for you to do before you go just tell us where can people find it more because i will put everything in the show notes but not everybody goes and visits the show notes and i do not want them to miss out so where can they find out more about you where can they find out more about the book and where can they get hold of some tools thank you so much so you can find the book anywhere you like to order your business books from it's on amazon it's on all your your major retail outlets um if you can't find it where you are then you can go to my website joemull.com which is also where you can learn more about about me about speaking about some of the other work that we do uh and you can get in touch if you're having trouble finding the book where you are then we'll help you get a copy brilliant joe thank you so much my friend for coming on i've, I've loved this i'm really loving the book and uh, listen everybody if you get a chance to read this book get a copy get stuck in it's it's fantastic brilliant thanks so much joe thank you andy it's been a blast okay my friend you take care okay everyone that was joe mull and if you'd like to find out a bit more about him or any of the things that we've talked about today please check out the show notes so that concludes today's episode I hope you've enjoyed it, found it interesting, and heard something maybe that will help you become a stickier, more successful business from the inside going forward. If you have, please like, comment, and subscribe. It really helps. I'm Andy Gorham, and you've been listening to the Sticky from the Inside podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>